All right. Well, we are uh, back in the uh, parables. I feel a little frazzled this morning. Um, is this thing really loud or is it just me? Am I just, am I finally hearing? Is this good? Okay. Thank you. Uh, I, it was about like 10 minutes before uh, service was to begin and my wife called to say that I had both sets of van keys. And so, um, but I got there, so I felt like I was like, it was weird because I was like driving around. I never drive around, you know, like nine o'clock uh, around Zionsville on a Sunday morning. And so then it was cool. I was just like coming, driving in here with everybody else. So it was kind of fun to see like everybody coming. I mean, I was, you know, not as, you know, most of us get here about 10 minutes after nine, but I came, you know, with the early ones who were getting here right around nine o'clock. And, um, so it was great. It was great. So, but now we're here, or I'm here, and we are here, and we are excited, I am sure all of us, to continue at our look in the parables. And so we will do that this morning. We're going to look at the parable of what's uh, sometimes called the Ten Bridesmaids, and that comes to us from the Gospel of Matthew, uh, chapter 25, uh, and we'll be looking at the first 13 verses. So I invite you to follow along. Jesus says, then the kingdom of heaven will be like this. Ten bridesmaids took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. And Five of them were foolish and five were wise. And when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. And as the bridegroom was delayed, all of them became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a shout, look, Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those bridesmaids got up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise replied, No, there will not be enough for you and for us. You had better go to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they went to buy it, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went with him into the wedding banquet And the door was shut. Later, the other bridesmaids came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I do not know you. Keep awake, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And let's pray. God, we come to you this morning uh, thanking you, Lord, thanking you for the choir um, being back with us this morning and for um, their leading us in worship and in a reminder that our foundation truly is in you. We give you praise for that. We pray, Lord, that you would be with us as we look over this parable, as we ask, what God would you have to say to us this morning? And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts, will be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen and amen. So, what is the most fun wedding that you have ever been at? Okay, just think about it for a little bit. I'm sure most of you can kind of, you know, automatically think of one or two. All right, what about the most depressing? What's the most depressing wedding you've ever been to, right? I see a couple of you looking at one another. I hope that you're not remembering your own wedding, um, right? Uh, let's see here. What's the kind of the, the, the strangest wedding that you've ever been a part of? Okay, you got it in your head? 
When I was at seminary, when I decided that I wanted to become a pastor, I was really just thinking about the fact that I would begin pastoring churches. That's really all I was thinking about. I hadn't even imagined the fact that because of that, there would be people who would want me to do their weddings. It just hadn't really dawned on me. And I got to tell you, it is a fascinating thing being able to be on the inside of the strange world of brides and grooms and in-laws and, and wedding coordinators and photographers. <laughs> Photographers can be vicious in weddings. It's, it's very fascinating. And so I just never really thought about it, but there's so many different kinds of weddings, right? I mean, I've been to, I've been to weddings where, um, you know, it was clear that the, the, the couple loved each other and that they really wanted Jesus to be a part of the wedding, and that's why I was there. And I've been to weddings where it's very clear the only reason I was there was because one of the parents really wanted me to be there, right? I've been to weddings where the, the, the tension between the bride and the mother was, you could just feel it, and it made everything really awkward. I've been to weddings that must have cost tens of thousands of dollars and weddings that couldn't have cost much more than $10. Uh, I, I mean, I have been to lots of different weddings. My guess is you have as well. I've done a lot of good old American weddings, and I also did one really cool Iraqi wedding. It was phenomenal. So I've been able to do a lot of weddings, and my guess is that you all have been to lots of weddings, and they're all very different. And if all those weddings here in the good old U.S. of A can be so dramatically different then it shouldn't surprise us that when it comes to this particular parable that it might seem a little bit odd to us. Because surely, if even uh, you know, weddings here in America in 2015 can seem kind of strange, th- then a wedding that took place a couple thousand years ago or the kinds of weddings that took place then and in a land very different than ours should probably seem a little bit strange. We know some things about what typical weddings were like, though we certainly don't know everything. Uh, some of the things, uh, this you probably already know, the, of course, the, the, the couple was oftentimes much younger when they got engaged. I mean, lifespans, quite frankly, were already pretty diminished. And so, you know, sometimes the girl could be, you know, 11, 12 years old even. And the engagements would oftentimes last a fair amount of time, sometimes as long as seven years these engagements could last before the actual marriage. And the whole time, of course, the the daughter continued to live with her parents and the the groom continued to live with his parents. And and when the the wedding day had finally arrived, right? I mean, can you imagine, you know, okay, day 2,314, finally this is the day, right? And, And so when the day finally arrived, the groom at some point and his party, the people who were with him, would be would, would go over to the bride's house and then they would they would take they would pick her up and and the family and the party there and then they would go back to the groom's house wherever the festivities which is where the wedding festivities would occur but just like us they didn't want this to be super quick they didn't want it to be over all of a sudden and so they didn't take kind of the the google map you know fastest way to the bride's house and back no what they would do is they would they would meander right they would go back and forth and go down one block and then another block and and then turn left when they should have turned right but they would do all of that so that so that everyone in the village right oftentimes smaller villages that everyone could kind of get a, a piece of the action they could all see the beautiful groom and the bride and can kind of in some way at least participate in this day. 
So that's what's happening in this particular scene. And so it's really not all that surprising, of course, then that the, the bridesmaids, who weren't really kind of bridesmaids as we look think about them, but they were supposed to go to the wedding. It's not too surprising then that they, that they weren't ready. It's not too surprising that they didn't know exactly when the party was going to reach them. And most of the weddings, of course, they took place at night because it would have been cooler then, right? And so, so of course, if you were doing a wedding at night and, you know, this was before there were street lamps or things, right? You had to bring a lamp, right, in order to see, in order to be seen. And so they would, they would bring a lamp, right? And so clearly then, as Jesus says, you have ten of them. You have the wise and the foolish, right? Five and five. Five who have both their lamps and the reserve and five who only had the lamps. And so they were waiting and they were delayed, Right? And anyone who's ever been a part of a wedding know that weddings are oftentimes delayed. And especially, again, when they're taking these meandering trips. But the five foolish ones, they forgot to bring a reserve. And so the five wise ones, after being asked, well, can we borrow some of yours when these lamps were clearly starting to go out? And they said no. So they had to go out and try to find it. And of course, right, this is just, you know, I mean, this is what happens. It would have happened to me, right? As soon as they left... Who came? The bridegroom, right? He came, and, and, and all of a sudden then, you know, the, the, the five wise ones, they have enough lamp, light, they, they're there, they go to the party, the celebration is going on, the five foolish ones who finally now have their lamps lit, they come, they knock on the door, and they are told that it is too late. The party has already begun. And the Lord of the party there says, I, I don't even know you. It, it's, a, it's a simple parable, and yet it's, it's, it's a little bit strange as well. And so the question, of course, that we always ask when it comes to parables, when things aren't necessarily explicit, is what is Jesus trying to tell us in this story? One of the uh, things that people oftentimes talk about is they want to know what is the oil. Does the oil stand for something? Now, we don't know for sure if the oil stands for something. Jesus never explains this parable. So we don't know for sure, but, but people have lots of theories as to what the oil is. I mean, if we need to have oil, if that's a part of the lesson here, then what is the oil? Dale Bruner, he suggests, well, the, the oil that's in the lamp, that's kind of the, that's, that's experiential Christianity if you will, right? This is, this is perhaps a conversion or maybe, you know, this is a worship service where you, you come and you experience worship together or maybe it's a, a weekend retreat or, or possibly, you know, it's a week-long mission trip, right? And, and these things are good, right? I mean, because they, you know, th- there's nothing bad about this experiential part of Christianity, right? It's oftentimes helpful in getting us to start. Uh, it's oftentimes helpful in kind of and firing us up again if we've kind of, you know, if our light has kind of gone down. I mean, these are good things. It's good to have some emotion. I know it's hard for us as Presbyterians to think that, but it's good to have some emotion when it comes to our faith. It's okay, right? It's the experiential aspect. However, inevitably, it will not allow us to persevere long term if we just try to go from one experience to the next, from one weekend retreat to the next mission trip to the next worship. No, you, you've got to do more than just that. Uh, this that excuse me so what Dale Bruner says is he says well this is kind of the, the the reserve oil that's the that's the that's the discipling 
oil, if you will. And so that's things like reading the scripture, or as we talked about last week, that's doing acts of love and mercy. It's following Jesus's teaching, because this is the way that shapes us more and more like Jesus, and allows us then to persevere, even in the more difficult times, even in the times when it feels like Jesus is not there. And if we look at the oil like that, it may make it a little bit easier for us to understand what is oftentimes the most kind of perplexing part of this parable for many folks, which is why in the world did the wise bridesmaids, why did they not share some of their oil, right? I mean, it seems to be counter to what Jesus would teach, right? I mean, Jesus just earlier in Matthew and the Beatitudes, of course, you know, he's talking about if someone needs to, you know, ask you for a coat, give them a tunic. I mean, all these kinds of things. It's always, hey, let's give. Let's not just live for ourselves. Let's give. And so if you were hearing this parable for the first time and they said, hey, can we have some oil? You would think that the story would be, well, of course, here, here's a little bit here for you, right? But perhaps if we think about the oil as in the way that Dale Bruner put it, perhaps it's the reality that if you've been shaped by Christ in these kinds of ways, that you can't simply just give somebody else how you have been shaped. You can't just kind of give them all the scripture that you've kind of begun to live by. You can't just kind of give them your your acts of love and mercy. Those have shaped you in a particular way. You can't just loan those out to somebody. It's a bit like this. It's a bit like me going to LA Fitness like I do about once a week, you know, for 30 or 40 minutes and walking in and going to LA Fitness. And and as I'm there during my 30 to 40 minutes for the week, I see some guy who works out, you know, two or three hours a day for six days a week. And I go up to and I say, hey man, I got a big event tonight. Is there any way I could borrow those biceps of yours, right? You can't do it, right? Now, how great would that be if you could, amen, right? But you can't, right? Because it's what's shaped him, right? And so the reality is that we can't just simply go and borrow some of these things. And so in some sense, it's a great, uh, I think it's a great challenge to some of us who might just think that we are kind of borrowing or we can borrow someone else's faith. That we can borrow the faith of a spouse, kind of ride on those coattails or, or a parent, right? Or a friend or even a church as a whole. Well, you know what? We can just kind of, we can just kind of go with, with, with their faith. And the reality is that for all of us, no matter how communal our faith is, there is also an incredibly personal part of faith. That you can't just depend on someone else's faith. That you have to have that faith on your own as well. So in many ways, it seems to me that perhaps this is also what Jesus is saying. That there are some things in faith that you simply cannot borrow. Of course, with this parable, perhaps the largest theme that we see is the return of Jesus. Now, I've talked a little bit about this before, about the reality that in my own tradition in which I was raised, the return of Jesus was something that we talked about all the time, right? I mean, it was just always there. We, we knew that Jesus was going to come at any 
moment. And so we would have evangelists that would come in and they would kind of, you know, they had the, the beautiful bar graph that showed the timeline that had everything that said, you know, okay, so now we know that, that Jesus is coming right here, right? Everyone, you know, we've talked about this. Everyone remember, you know, the 88 reasons why Jesus is coming back in 1988, you know? You know, we just just barely missed that one. And so so there's, there was always that, that sense though, right? And so there was always that fear, right? I had these, I had these cassette tapes, right? And uh, um, this is back in the day, right? And so I had these cassette tapes, right? And I would, I would read through, you know, I would listen to them, you know, and it was all about, you know, in great detail. And this is why we know he's going to come right here. And I would always end it. And I was just scared to death, right? And, and I would come home and mom would be gone. And I would think, uh-oh, this is not good, you know? Jesus has come and I have been left behind clearly, right? I mean, that was a very much, I mean, I'm, I, if anyone was raised in a similar tradition, you know, it's just, it was a fixation in so many ways. And so I, I told the, the women's Bible study group, oh, back in spring when I was talking a little bit about these kinds of things, that it was really one of the things that drew me to Presbyterian. I'm not kidding. One of the things that drew me to Presbyterianism is that we hardly ever talk about Jesus's return. I mean, we just don't talk about it that much, Right? And those first several years when I was kind of living within that new world, I was like, this is phenomenal. I mean, I was not always scared, right? I could come home, and if Megan wasn't there, I didn't get nervous, right? I mean, I thought, okay, well, we're okay, you know. It doesn't mean that Jesus has returned and I have been left behind. But over the last few years, I've also begun to see that perhaps that's not also all a really good thing that there may actually be some danger in never talking about the return of Jesus. There may actually be some danger in the fact that we don't really think about this all that much, that we don't live with the end in mind. That it actually does change in many dramatic ways how we live now. Someone has suggested that it's a little bit similar to engagements and weddings, to continue with that theme. Uh, when Megan and I, we got engaged at the end of March, as I recall. She's not here, so don't tell her I can't remember exactly, but sometime. It was in March. And we were going to get married August 26th, right? So it was about five months. Nothing had happened yet. We weren't married yet. And yet the reality is that much in my life began to change immediately, right? I didn't stop going to work. I still went to work. I kept paying my bills. You know, I didn't stop eating. I mean, I ate much less because I knew we had picture day, you know. So, but, but by and large, most of those things, the ordinary things changed, though I did look at them a little bit different, but some of the other things just began to change, right? I, I can remember distinctly the exact Verizon wireless store that we went to in Bartlett, Illinois, right there on Army Trail Road, when Meg and I went there, probably in, in, in April or so, and we got our first kind of family plan. Right? Cell phone, right? Does anyone else remember? Okay. I remember it very distinctly, right? I was probably sweating a little bit, but it was like things are going to change, right? We had a family plan. We got a, we, you know, a joint checking. Now, that wasn't really that scary because neither of us had any money, but we knew, but at least, you know, it was, it was something different, right? I, I, I moved into, even though Megan lived far away and uh, didn't move even to where I was until after we got married, we, you know, I bought a bigger, or I didn't buy, I rented a larger house because I knew at some point, you know what, she wasn't going to stay 
stay in this little teeny tiny kind of flat that I was living in, right? Lots of those things began to change. Why? Because I was getting prepared. I was expecting that at any moment on August 26th, everything was going to change. It changed how I spent my time, my money, everything, because I was getting prepared and waiting with great expectancy for this end date. And one of the reasons why it changes how we live now is because of the fact that it begins to change our priorities. If we start living with the end in mind, it changes our priorities now. As we were talking about this text two or three months ago now as a staff, someone remembered a story that they had been told. It's a true story. And so I'm going to actually ask for a couple of helpers for this story. And I've already, I've already preset the helpers. So Barb, will you come up and will you stand here? And I've asked my daughter, Shaughnessy, if she will come. There she is. She's very excited about this. Will you come up here, please? And will you stand right here? Thank you, Shaughnessy, and thank you, Barb. So, it's a story about marbles, right? She's doing a great job, as are you, Barb. You're doing great. Yeah. It's a story about marbles. This man said he was 51 years old at the time. Like I said, true story, 51 years old, and he realized that his life was a little bit out of whack. His priorities were not very good. So he was probably an engineer or something. He had a math kind of minded kindness about him. And so he decided, you know what, here's something I want to do. I want to figure out if the normal person lives, I think it was around 3,900 weeks. I'm 51. If I live until I'm 75, that means I have about 1,000 weeks left. And so he then went to three different toy stores and bought marbles. And he bought 1,000 of them. And he then came and he put them in a clear glass, something like one of these. And every Saturday morning, he would go down and he would take one of those marbles and he would throw it away. Now, the marbles that we have here today, because we felt like, you know what, maybe we should give you a little bit of an image if you're curious And so, Shaughnessy's, if you are six years old, then you have this many marbles, these many weeks, right, on average. You don't have to gloat about it, but I mean, look at that. For me, right, we were trying to, this is, this is funny how hard it is for us to talk about this. I'm 41 years old, and I was wondering, do I say when I classify myself, I'm middle age? I must be, 41 must be, you don't have to nod your head yes, Jill. 41 must be middle age, right? And so this, on average, is about how many marbles I have left. And then Barb, and, and bless Barb's heart, who's willing to come up here, right? Right? And on average, I'm sure you have more than this, but on average, right, this is about what Barb has. And it seems kind of morbid right, in some sense, and yet what this does is it helps us to remember, right? One of the things that he said when he was doing this is it helped him to remember his priorities. In fact, what he said, I love this quote. He he says this. He says, there is something, there is nothing, he says, like watching your time on this earth run out to help you get your priorities straight, That there is nothing like this practice of taking away one marble each week to try to remind us to keep our priorities straight. The truth is, we would prefer to ignore it. 
right? We would prefer to act like, well, no, who knows? That's not going to happen. We would prefer to act like, well, no, Jesus will never return. He hasn't returned this far. He won't return. We prefer to think that we have bottomless marbles. And what that ends up doing, of course, is it makes us think that there will always be time for us to make different decisions, Always be time for us to get things right. Always be time for us to refill our oil. Always be time for us to light our lamps again. You guys can be seated. I see you staring at it. You can be seated. Yeah, yeah. Shaughnessy, you can go back to Miss Betsy. Thank you. But the parable that Jesus tells, and I would suggest the parable of the marbles as well, is it reminds us and it makes us ask the hard questions of whether or not we are living life with the awareness that things will not always be as they are right now. Something will change in your life. It may be you're dying and meeting Jesus. It may be Jesus' return. But something, I promise you, and I know this isn't necessarily all that uplifting, but something will change. And the question is, are we living life with the end in mind? But the beautiful thing about this is that it helps to give us clarity and purpose. It helps us to ask, what are we living for? You see, the reality, brothers and sisters, is that we live in a world that loves to distract us, and we love to be distracted by it. One of the hard parts about the world in which we live in right now is there are so many choices, and those choices allow us to get lost in the present. Perhaps some of you saw this in the uh, Onion, the satire magazine, this last week. Let's see the slide there. I want to show you that. Pope Francis reversed his position on capitalism after seeing a wide variety of American Oreos. When I was growing up, and I, this is why I know I am middle-aged, when I was growing up, if you wanted Oreos, guess what you got? You got Oreos. Right? And then they finally did double stuff, right? And then they got golden Oreos, by the way, the best Oreos that there are. But they're not done. There are s'more Oreos now, right? There are red velvet Oreos. There are, there are Reese's Oreos. There are Halloween Oreos. So just think about this, right? You go to the grocery store and you say, hey, I'm going to get some Oreos. Just think about the time that you spend. 20 years ago, you would have seen the Oreos. You would have got them. Now you're like, are you kidding me? Well, I know Aunt Myrtle loves those kind, and I know that I like this kind, and my mom likes this kind, and I kind of like both of these kinds. And before you know it, think about even just then, the time that you have spent, a.k.a. wasted, trying to make that one decision. Right? Or think about, I was reading a commentary about this passage that was written in 1993. Okay? And it was talking about a news article that they had recently read that said in several years, if you can believe it, there would be like more than 50 sports channels. And, and there would be more than 50 movie channels. And he said, what would you do with 100 channels coming into your home? Well, most of us know exactly what we would do with more than 100 channels coming into our home. 
My point is not, well, we shouldn't have these options. My point is that there are tons of things to distract us. And that doesn't even go into cell phones and alerts that come on and texts that come up at all times of the day and night. All of these things are there and distract us and lose us in the present moment. We can get lost in them and time can simply pass us by. How many of you, after having a hard work a day or day at work, will go home and say, I'm just going to watch a quick 30-minute show. I love this show. And you watch it, and four hours later, you say, what happened to that night? How aware are we of the end? And does it change the way we live right now? If you knew that Jesus was going to return in two years, Or if you knew that for some reason your marbles were about to be spilled. How would that give you clarity for today? The question I want us to ask is, it's a simple question. If you live with the end in mind, what's the one thing that would change today in your life? For some of you, for some of you, it may very well be that if you live with the end in mind, it may be that today you finally decide, you know what, I'm actually going to start following this Jesus today. I've been living life as if I was always going to have time. Why do it now? I can always wait until I'm on my deathbed or some other time when it's more convenient, when I have more space, when I'm less harried. Or perhaps there's some of us who, as I said earlier, have simply been living there and living off of someone else's faith for a while. Perhaps if you lived with the end in mind, with the thinking that Jesus could return or something could happen to these marbles, how might that change how you would live when it comes to Jesus today? For others of us, it may be that we start asking the question, are we living distracted lives? And if we really started living with the end in mind, might it not bring us some more clarity so that we would stop being quite so distracted and actually live with purpose? How many of us, as we think about that, would say, you know what, maybe I shouldn't be spending as much time watching television as I am with my spouse or my children or my friends or my neighbor? How many of us might then begin to say, you know what, rather than having my priority always be about what brings me pleasure, maybe I'll I'll think about what might bring pleasure to God. For some of us, it might be that as we think about how we spend our money, perhaps rather than just spending it for what's here right now and the joy that it gives us right here and right now, perhaps we think more about investing in God's kingdom. Even for a church, it's an important question to ask. I've asked our session the question that I asked us just a, few, just a couple minutes ago. If we knew that Jesus was going to return in two years, how would that change the decisions we make right now? There are lots of good things that we can do. There are lots of things that people want us to do. But the reality is, if you knew that Jesus was going to return in two years, and he was there in two years, and he said, what have you been doing for the last two years? What do we want to tell him? What do we want him to know our priorities were and what we spent all of our time and our money and our resources doing? As you leave this morning... There are going to be some marbles that are back by the doors. I'm going to ask you to take one of those. Don't take one of these. Amen? Amen. 
we will guard these. But I'm going to ask you to take a marble, to take it with you, maybe to take it to your home group or just to stick it in your pocket and take it with you this week. And when you see that marble, keep asking that question. If I lived life with the end in mind, what might I do differently today? If I lived life with the end in mind, what might I do differently today? My hope and my prayer is that as we do that, as we think about that marble, as it sits there and rubs against our leg when it's in our pocket, as we think about that, as we think about when Jesus returns, whenever it is that we actually see Jesus, my hope and my prayer is that we will have lived lives that were fully prepared and ready for him. That we lived lives where we were loving God and where we were loving our neighbor in such a way that when we meet Jesus, we might join in that beautiful feast in God's kingdom. May it be so. Amen.